Almost over 60 million angels cried and rejoiced with what happened today. While many believed that it would be a tight response, keep in mind that purpose matters. Purpose matters more than anything. But with great victory comes great resistance. What I noticed was that uh, outside of the Supreme Court, the pro-life and pro-murder groups were commingling. The police were there creating a barrier, secluding the pro-life people from those that proudly showcased that they're proud Antifa scum, and this is their words, not mine, and that... The patriarchy, F the patriarchy, actually, it's the Christo-fascist patriarchy. See, you know, I really wish that it would be a lot easier and not a touchy subject to talk about the story of Jesus Christ and Christ in itself. Uh, But it's so touchy because it's so hard uh, to uh, change uh, the way people like to think. How's that? I think that's the best way. Uh, because no matter how you put it, you know, we, we have seen that many people uh, around us in our communities suffer from what we would say occultism, right? And cults are a very powerful uh, thing. Now, I'm not saying that uh, all that religions are cult, not all of them. But the mentality of um, ensuring that someone thinks only one way and that only one way is the truth, uh, that is uh, the concern. That That is what I call a Bible thumper. Uh, someone that doesn't understand pure love, that thinks that God is, you know, f- someone to fear when, when, when you should not. So the decision was a 6-3 decision. That's that's pretty huge. I wonder if they're going to show us Sotomayor's tush yet. Not yet. I don't think so. But it's it's <laughs> it's pretty incredible how people were pessimistic and I don't trust Amy Comey Barrett and I don't trust this. Promises made, promises kept. You know, and this morning when I got up, I got up and I get up usually without an alarm clock. And that always happens when I am rested, meaning that I have had the ability to sleep um, and that I feel a little bit more organized per se, right? Not really. I'm the most disorganized person ever uh, because I'm doing too many things at once. But you know, 
I lay in bed at about 5.30 a.m. and just looking out the window and admiring my cat, how he just lays out on the window seat. And I was thinking, you know, I wonder if people think this. Do you ever wake up and you think, oh, you know, what's driving me to get up? You know, uh, wanting to live life. And uh, I know a lot of people are like, oh, I just want to pull the covers over my head. I don't want to. Uh, people don't want to go to work because they don't like it. It feels like work. Uh, uh, people don't like uh, the environment they're in, maybe uh, the partner that they have or, um, you know, their situation. But if you want to live a life filled with love, which is happiness and fulfillment, you have to seek one thing and one thing only, not seek riches, but seek purpose. Figure out in your life what drives you. Like, seriously ask yourself that personal question. Like, what drives me? Like, what would make me happy? Like, there are some times I could tell you that I just want to turn things off and just play Age of Empires or Call of Duty and just ignore the whole world. There are times that I will you know, sit in that bubble. And this is probably why I always take those five minutes. When I park my car, I give myself five minutes to escape and I play backgammon, even though I get frustrated with the AI when it cheats, right? And I know it cheats because, uh, you know, it, it, it looks at the most probabilities. That's why I always complete actions that a computer would not expect. But cheating, like in the dice, right? I get upset. But regardless, I give myself that escape time to collect my thoughts and, and, and say, okay, why do I feel that I need to be a recluse? And, you know, why am I lacking this inspiration, right? Why do I not find this drive to improve my life? And you would say everything that I'm doing, which is true, is destroying what one would conceive as a life. I, I mean, I can't even get a job at a Walmart as a bagger. Okay. I've been completely blacklisted. So, you know, what would I do? What, what am I doing that is, that's definitely not improving my life, as one would say? It's causing me more harm than good, one might say. But that's that standard. For me, it is improving my life. Because, any, because I feel that the purpose of me not abiding by what others say and by seeking redemption and by doing what I do is my purpose. Everyone seems to have a purpose, no matter how big or small I feel, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to make things right and I'm going to do my part and, and that's it. I, I completely enjoy educating. I should have seen that when I TA'd for the physics department. Like I was so good. Nobody failed my class and everybody got it, but it's, it's a purpose. That's the, that's, that's the thing that lights the fire in you. A purpose of the, the one small thing you can do, no matter what your family and friends are telling you, right? They're counting on you to do that thing. And one might say, well, if I know my purpose, then I know the reason for living. Well, that's not the same thing, but your purpose will light such a fire under you that you will be obsessed 
obsessed and it doesn't even feel like work. It's not going to feel like work. It'll be, you'll be so driven that there won't be a day without thinking about how to achieve your purpose or your goal. And, and when you, when you, when you sleep, you, you think about it, you dream about it, you wake up and, and you can't rest until you do it and you will keep doing it. And you don't need an alarm clock to wake up because the purpose that you find no matter how small others might say it is, may be grand to you. It's building every single portion of your soul that you know this building block of purpose, this target, this thing is the purpose that you need. And that's the fire and the reasoning behind what you do and why you do what you do. (laughs) Because you want to achieve it. Find your fire. Your fire is your will and your strength (laughs) to your purpose. It'll keep you fighting when everyone else thinks you're out for the count. Because you're not fighting for those that are against you. You're fighting for those that are standing next to you or standing behind you. If they stand next to you, help them. If they stand behind you, help them. If they stand in front of you, pray for them because they're going to need it. So I would totally suggest that everyone write down a small purpose of something that, you know, gave you a little bit of drive. You know, those rabbit holes that you get into? That's a purpose. You've got a purpose. I'm going to find this. Boom. And you're suddenly into it. You're researching. You're on USA spending. You're pulling documents. You're going into little sis. You're going everywhere. And you feel it. You feel this sense of, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to get this done. See, that little purpose give you drive for like the eight hours you sat without going to the bathroom or drinking water. Yeah, that one. That is what wakes us up in the morning. Purpose, purpose, a purpose can move uh, mountains. A purpose can open doors where they didn't even exist. It is the fire that forges your accomplishment. It gives you the fire to burn down the world of limitations and expectations. And the water you need to drown out anyone trying to tackle your purpose. All you need to do is find that. You know, it was uh, pretty interesting. I was um, thinking about it this morning with the Spartans, right? (laughs) And Leonidas responded to Xerxes. Xerxes wrote to him. It is possible for you by not fighting against God, but ranging yourself to my side to be the sole ruler of Greece. That's what he told him, you know, don't fight against God, you know, uh, you know, by not, by, he said, it's possible for you by not fighting against God, but to align himself with him and they will be the rulers of Greece. And he said something that was so perfect. 
He said, if you had any knowledge of the noble things of life, you would be refrain from coveting others' possessions. But for me, to die for Greece is better than to be the sole ruler over the people of my race. See, the problem that, that, that we have is that people seek to rule. And that's the problem. You know, it was, it was love. It was so amazingly said, oh, it's not Leonidas. I don't remember who said it. Was it Plutarch? I, he said, uh, you know, people were asking him, how can we keep out the invasion of armies from our, you know, city state? What do we do? And he said these really wise words, and these are so underrated. If you remain poor and no, and none of you desires to be more important than the other, that is how we can keep any invasions by armies out. Now, he didn't mean poor as in, you know, wear potato sacks and not have two pennies to rub together. He meant humble. To be poor and everyone be equal and not desire to be more important than the other. That's the thing. We constantly have this tug, this tug of war amongst the people around our nation and many nations to overpower others. And this is why cults are very successful because they borderline, just like love and hate borderline, so do cults. Cult experts will tell you a lot. And I found uh, a, a fun video that'll that'll help and and the reason i'm i'm stating this is because you must understand how the mentality works and this applies to you know fans of ball games and whatnot parties political parties uh you know ideologies or you know in you know setting up a figure high again i really wish we can talk about you know Jesus's life before he was 33, before you knew him as the person crucified, that you knew how close he was to Judas and what they did and what Mary Magdalene, these are real, real historic moments. And you would understand the Christ and how Jesus Christ became synonymous, but Christ was separate because of Jesus. And it's so incredible. But again, everything borderlines a cult. And uh, there's a difference between uh, common support and cult-like behavior. Um, so let's watch this quick video, uh, which is quite interesting. And it, and it, ex it cult experts reveal how to re-brainwash a member of an evil cult. Keep in mind, this is going to be coming up to be very important because these conversations will be had. Because if you noticed, it's a war on religion. So, uh, this is why I tread really lightly on this because, you know, I hear people saying it about my listener beast. They're a cult. Why are they a cult? Like, are they a cult listening to all the other people? Huh? Are they a cult listening to, I don't know, freaking Mark Elias? Are they a cult? Are they a cult listening to X-22? Are they a cult? So why is it? Oh, because the people that actually listen to me are doers and the other people are just listening to them for entertainment purposes or just to feel satisfied or troll or whatever. I see. See, that's not how cult works. But take a listen to this.
In order for cults to be successful, they have to be good at enticing followers. Not only must they be able to recruit new members, but they must also be able to maintain their allegiance. Typically, conversion involves someone who is vulnerable. That is, someone who has recently lost a friend or a loved one, failed an important exam, or otherwise feels helpless, depressed, or alone. For a vulnerable person, joining a cult can be very tempting, as it often comes with some promise of reward, companionship, peace of mind, a place to stay, and more. Of course, it also helps if the cult has a leader who is charismatic and adept at the art of persuasion. Given the appeal, how can one possibly ever hope to talk a member into leaving? How do you deprogram a cult member? Back in the 70s, deprogramming involved drastic measures to be taken. That is, the cult member would be physically kidnapped and dragged away from the cult. It was an expensive service, costing upwards of tens of thousands of dollars. So not just anyone could ask to have a friend or family member stripped apart from a cult. After being forcefully removed against their will, the cult member would undergo hours of intense debriefing, in which psychological techniques were utilized as an attempt to counter the brainwashing that had been done to the individual while in the cult. These psychological techniques involved educating the cult member, asking critical questions in order to encourage the person to think in an independent way, and trying to provoke an emotional reaction in the person that would help him reconnect with his former life. This part was done by introducing objects from the person's past and having family members share memories of pre-cult life. In essence, you could say it was conducted like an intervention of sorts. Today, we understand that it's highly unethical to kidnap people against their invention of sorts. Today, we understand that introducing objects from the person's past and having family members share memories of pre-cult life. In essence, you could say it was conducted like an intervention of sorts. Today, we I was trying to stop it on the screen. Let me see if I can stop it on the screen with the questions. So the debrief is, how do you feel? What happened? What did you learn? How does this relate? You know, uh, what if question mark and what next? So basically, the intervention was kidnapping them and trying to fix their minds. So uh, again, someone would ask you, how do you feel? Yeah, I feel, you know, they would answer. Oh, I feel empowered. Okay, why? Why? What happened? I don't know. The guy started floating. Did you check for strings? Like, how, what did you learn from him floating while you were watching him? Or he got shot in the head but was resurrected. Oh, he was resurrected. And how did? How, what did you learn from that? That he was shot in the head and he was resurrected. Therefore, he can float or he's God on earth. Um, you know, and some would be like, well, how does that relate to the floating in the gutter? Because that's a miracle. I see. Well, what if I told you that it wasn't a miracle and it was a rubber bullet and he just had a lot of blood and the floating was strings? Then how would that make you feel? What next? You know, th this is how they would originally go by debriefing or trying to reduce, you know, um, cultish mentalities. I've seen it in action when they obtain ISIS, uh, you know, or Al-Qaeda members. It's past and having family, family members share, share memories, memories of pre-cult life. In essence, you could say it was conducted like an intervention of sorts. Today, we understand that it's highly unethical to kidnap people against their will, so this method of deprogramming is no longer utilized. Though it may be tempting to want to pull out someone forcefully and hit them with a stroke of reality and a taste of the outside world, this method simply isn't the answer. 
As the old saying goes, two wrongs don't make a right. And so it can be tough to convince someone that their cult conducts unethical practices when you yourself just acted unethically by kidnapping the guy to begin with. The act of kidnapping alone also has the potential to cause a certain level of post-traumatic stress that could be greater than whatever events occurred in the cult, which is obviously counterproductive. In this way, the whole operation can do more harm than good, and the person may decide they want to return to the cult for the sake of seeking refuge. Congratulations, your deprogramming session served to reaffirm the person's desire to stay in their cult by helping them realize the danger of the outside world. So, then you might be wondering how else deprogramming can be done. Well, with any change, we know that it's far better to allow people to come to their own conclusions and make the choice for themselves to seek help rather than act on force. Though it may be frustrating to accept, you simply can't control the actions and cognitions of others. From your perspective, you may see a loved one make an obvious mistake, but unless they come to terms with that mistake themselves, there's really nothing you can do and trying to intervene has a risk of fueling resentment and causing a rift in your relationship. In a way, it's like watching a horror film when the lead character turns a corner blissfully unaware that the killer is right there. You shout at the TV screen yelling, don't go in there! As the viewer, you know what's in store, but you have to sit there and watch the character face the threat anyway. That's when you might hide under your blanket, shielding yourself from the anticipated moment. This you do because you just can't bring yourself to watch. So is there anything that can be done for cult members, or is it entirely out of your hands, like watching a character make the wrong choice in a horror film? Thankfully, you're not completely out of options. Kidnapping and imprisonment may be out of favor nowadays, but there is another method that most families turn to. This method is known as exit counseling. Exit counseling focuses on using psychological techniques towards steering the cult member to submit to a debriefing session voluntarily. The job of an exit counselor is to guide the family of a cult member by introducing them to effective communication strategies. Family members are told not to be judgmental and to remain calm and loving. Otherwise, they'll only drive away the cult member, reinforcing the idea that the outsiders are not to be trusted. The family is taught how to convince the person to consider debriefing in a gentle, non-forceful way. Exit counseling is successful if the cult member agrees to participate in the process. If not, the family must come to terms with the reality of the situation. When a cult member agrees to undergo the process, the psychological debriefing techniques that are used are the same as they were in the 70s. That is, they involve long hours of intensive sessions. Unlike the debriefing process of the past, however, the cult member is free to leave at any time. As we mentioned before, you can't force any person into a specific course of action. For this reason, there's no guarantee that exit counseling and cult removal will work. About one-third of deprogrammings tend to fail, and the statistics on the success rate of exit counseling are not definitive. When it does work, former cult members find themselves returned to the outside world, but not without a whole new set of problems. Some people who leave cults can go on with their life after a short adjustment period, while others may struggle for a longer duration. It depends on the level of psychological damage, the type of the cult, and how long the person was in the cult. Those who leave a totalist or destructive cult could experience severe depression or anxiety and have trouble making decisions for themselves once released into the external world. This is because a totalist cult tends to exploit its members' vulnerability as a manipulation tactic to exercise complete control. To do this, some unethical psychological techniques are used, such as through reform, which basically brainwashes individuals. Another kind of cult, known as the non-destructive religion type, uses a different manipulation strategy. These cults attempt to alleviate the feeling of vulnerability by offering spiritual guidance in order to exercise control over the members. 
While some may move on fairly quickly in post-cult life, others can go through something known as floating, in which the former cult member shifts back and forth between the cult and non-cult ways of thinking and viewing the world. Sometimes they can experience flashbacks. There are also many other psychological and emotional difficulties that former cult members may endure. Some may experience regret for leaving because they now feel meaningless in the outside world, unable to hold on to a job or handle money. The cult may have provided the person with a sense of purpose and community that's now lost to them, and they might not be able to rejoin for one reason or another. Others may feel guilt and shame from past actions, knowing that they've been brainwashed into recruiting new members and collecting money in illegitimate ways. They may also feel guilty for past treatment of friends and family members, or resentment over their cult leaders who may have had them commit crimes or acts of violence against others for some presumed purpose. It may also be difficult for former members to accept their past actions and forgive themselves. Then there's the fear of retribution. If a former member was a part of a particularly violent cult with a leader who threatened the lives of defectors, that person may live with a constant sense of paranoia. In this case, the ex-member may fear chance street meetings with cult members and the very real danger that would accompany this. There are many other situations too which may complicate post-cult life in the outside world, such as if the former member has family still in the cult. Some may have left behind spouses or children and any attempt at making contact is too risky. If a person was raised in a cult or spent most of their life there, they may lack an understanding of the outside world that would allow them to function normally. The list of problems is practically never-ending, which can increase the difficulty for people wanting to rejoin life outside the cult. Overall, the consensus among psychologists for the best way to aid a former cult member with reintegration into society is to provide them with an abundance of family and social support. Be as loving and understanding as you can, and importantly, you must exercise patience. Understand that former cult members may be overwhelmed and terrified, questioning their decision to leave and feeling extremely insecure and fearful. All you can do is be sensitive to this and let the person know that you're willing to listen to their concerns. What would your method of deprogramming be? Let us know in the comments. Now, go watch The Most Evil Cults in the History of Mankind. You can watch those most evil cults of mankind, the screaming women, uh, you know, and then Congress members of Congress that are um, encouraging protests. Yes, they are. They totally are. See how easy it is to remove people like that from office because she just incited violence and said you should get into the streets. But, you know, the funniest part, and I'm going to show this clip before we get into uh, more uh, lengthy thing. It's almost as if President Trump can travel through time. Before I took office, there was a lot of folks out there, a lot of folks out there making some pretty bold predictions about how things would turn out. You might remember some of the predictions. They're coming for your guns, they're coming for your jobs, and they're coming for your freedom. They hate American energy and Joe Biden will shut it all down. He's going to. Uh, that if, if I became. And that was a true statement. President Biden's elected, he will wipe out your energy industry. Another prediction that is my and that happened. Favorite one, I must add, 
is that if I got elected, gas prices going five, six, seven dollars for a gallon. We're almost at eight. Flood your communities with criminal aliens, drugs and crime while they live behind beautiful gated compounds. That's 100 percent true. 100 percent true. They try to take away your guns. Second Amendment. They want to take it away. And it's the Republicans under Biden uh, that did that. While they enjoy private security that's fully armed. I never understood that one. You spent trillions of dollars rebuilding foreign nations, fighting foreign wars, and defending foreign borders. So for all those predictions of doom and gloom six months in, here's where we stand. Do you want to use the word recession or depression? Think of the single mom struggling to put food on the table each month. You know, it's, uh, it's sad. So if your primary concern right now is inflation. We could stop it in 30 minutes. When I took office. He finally went outside. He went to get an ice cream. Look, the bottom line is this. I say you're not doing a very good job. Because he can't take any questions now from the press. Um, that was true. All of that was true. Every single portion of it was true. And there's more to come. Almost like President Trump was a time traveler. But we are going to travel back in time because I'm going to show you that the war in Ukraine that happened just after election fraud has happened before. And you guys forgot. It's your typical MO. Distract while we do. They knew Roe versus Wade was coming out. Hence why they pushed the Second Amendment bill. That's going to be their new hone in considering. Huh? Well, let's see what they do. In regards to uh, the riots. I've seen more Supreme Court confirmations than anyone today, where this case was always, always discussed. discussed. I believe Roe v. Wade was the correct decision as a matter of constitutional law and application of the fundamental right to privacy and liberty in matters of family and personal autonomy. It was a decision on a complex matter that drew a careful balance between a woman's right to choose earlier in her pregnancy and the state's ability to regulate later in her pregnancy. A decision with broad national consensus that most Americans of faith and backgrounds found acceptable and that have been the law of the land for most of the lifetime of Americans today. And it was a constitutional principle upheld by justices appointed by Democrat and Republican presidents alike. Roe v. Wade was a 7-2 decision written by a justice appointed by a Republican president, Richard Nixon. In the five decades that followed Roe v. Wade, justices appointed by Republican presidents from Eisenhower, Nixon, and Reagan, George W. Bush, were among the justices who voted to uphold the principles set forth in Roe v. Wade. It was three justices named by one president, Donald Trump, were the. Nothing yet. Women are going to control their bodies no matter how they try and stop us. The hell with the Supreme Court. We will defy them. Women will be in control of their bodies. And if they think black women are intimidated or afraid, they got another. Black babies matter. We will be out by the thousands. We will be out by the millions. We are going to 
Good. Good. Here the demons come. That was Maxine Waters inciting violence again. This is going to be very interesting considering the J6 committee is still out, right? Let's continue to hear what he has to say. It's President Trump's fault for appointing those three judges. The core of today's decision to upend the scales of justice and eliminate a fundamental right for women in this country. Make no mistake, this decision is a culmination of a deliberate effort over decades to upset the balance of our law. It's a realization of an extreme ideology and a tragic error by the Supreme Court, in my view. The court has done what it has never done before, expressly take away a constitutional right that is so fundamental to so many Americans that had already been recognized. The court's decision to do so will have real and immediate consequences. State laws banning abortion are automatically taking effect today, jeopardizing the health of millions of women, some without exceptions. So extreme that women could be punished for protecting their health. So extreme that women and girls were forced to bear their rapist child. The child of consequence. It just just stuns me. So extreme that doctors will be criminalized for fulfilling their duty to care. That is a bold-faced lie. If you were raped and you got pregnant... There is no doctor on this planet, no law in this nation that will not consider it medical treatment if you see that fit. Your well-being is usually accounted more than that of a, of, of a child in your womb, your well-being. You are not going to have uh, mental issues. You are not going to have reoccurring nightmares Because you had sex and did not use protection. And if you did use it and it failed, you weren't getting raped. So let's just say I'm against it. If, 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 if I were raped and I got pregnant, I would still keep the baby. That is my choice. But if I were raped, I'd also have the choice to say, I cannot bear this child. I would rather burn in hell than allow it to come out of me. Because I feel that way in that state. You cannot be in the psyche of another. So what he is saying is completely false. It is completely false. Because if you are raped, you will immediately know if you are pregnant. You're not going to wait three, four months to find out. Unless you've hidden it or whatever, right? But there is no doctor that I know that would not... Say, all right, this person definitely needs it psychologically. They're completely screwed. So for those that are in situations like that or a mom that's told, hey, this is an ectopic pregnancy. It will kill you. We need to take it out. You know, that's not banned either. I'm just saying if you were raped today, you could walk down to your CVS and get plan B, take that pill And there's no baby. So I don't, and that is for the reason of following. Conception occurs within the fallopian tube, right, where they meet and they hang out. And then it has to go and implant. This is why a lot of women that struggle with fertility understand uh, phantom pregnancies, chemical pregnancies, right? It means that the, the trilaminar 
of their uterus was not enough to sustain a pregnancy, right? So basically, plan B creates the uterus to not be a good environment for the egg to sit and, you know, grow and implant itself. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to (laughs) make it as simple as possible. If you were raped and you tell someone, or if you don't tell, you could simply walk to a CVS and buy some plan B. So there is no implantation, right? Women that know, know that, uh, you know, when you get pregnant, the, um, fertilization happens in the fallopian. It travels down to the uterus. Usually if it's a male, it'll sit on the apex of the uterus. Uh, this is why bellies are shaped different and females are further down. Um, so as it goes in there, it has to embed. This is why some women actually experience implantation bleeding where it actually buries a little hole so that it can grow, right? So that it can happen. I, I, I'm just pointing out different things. So he's clearly lying and, and saying things that don't make sense. When we have ways to avoid any such happenings. But on the other hand, if God chose that, you carry a child based under different circumstances, either that be rape, accidental, you know, failing of contraceptives because, you know, you sleep with a lot of people during the same day. You don't know, whatever. It was meant to be. There's people that are, that are literally paying thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to be able to procreate and they can't. So, uh, I, I want to clarify that he is speaking to those that don't seem to understand. I don't see how this is a viable statement, yet some may. Imagine having a young woman have to... Ch- I don't know. You might know. You like young women, don't you? Women. Fast forward. I can't hear it's that. Cruel. It's cruel. In fact, the court laid out state laws criminalizing abortion that go back to the 1800s as rationale. The court literally taking America back 150 years. This is a sad day for the country, in my view. But it doesn't mean the fight's over. Let me be very very clear. clear They're going to start aging now. The only way we can secure a woman's right to choose, the balance that existed. She doesn't have to be a whore. To restore the protections of Roe v. Wade as federal law. No executive action no. from the president can do that. No, no, that's not happening. If Congress, as it appears, lacks the vote to vote to do that now. Voters need to make their voices heard. This fall, we must elect more senators and representatives who will codify women's right to choose into federal law once again. Elect more state leaders to protect this right at the local level. We need to restore the protections of Roe as law of the land. We need to elect, elect officials who Even though it was that. based on a lie. Okay. This fall, Roe is on the ballot. Personal freedoms are on the ballot. The right to privacy, liberty, equality, they're all on the ballot. Until then, I will do all of my power to protect a woman's right in states where they will face the consequences of today's decision.
While the court's decision cast a dark shadow over a large swath of the land, many states in this country still recognize a woman's right to choose. So, if a woman lives in a state that restricts abortion, the Supreme Court's decision does not prevent her from traveling from her home state to the state that allows it. It does not prevent a doctor in that state, in that state, from treating her. As the Attorney General has made clear, women must re remain free to travel safely to another state to seek care they need. My administration will defend that bedrock right. If any state or local official, high or low, tries to interfere with a woman's ex exercise and her basic right to travel, I will do everything in my power to fight that deeply un-American attack. Wait, 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 Her right to travel? Hold on a second, guys. What did he just say? Her right to travel? Hold on. Wait a minute. So I'm in Ohio. Say Ohio bans abortion. And I go to Indiana because Indiana is going to allow it. This is hypothetical. Why would stop? Why would someone stop me for traveling to another state? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. Do you mean that there may be federally funded or state funded bus routes or NGOs that will be paying for people to travel to their state? How does a state disallow someone from traveling to another one? Uh, is this throwing a kink into your July plans, Senor Biden? Think again. Basic right to travel to a state to get it done. How would that even happen? Hmm? Nothing to do with the barricades I saw being built months ago. Last September, actually. Hmm? Her right to travel. Hmm. Interesting. My administration will also protect a woman's access to medications that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, like contraception, which is essential for preventative health care. Mifeprestone, which the FDA approved 20 years ago to safely end early pregnancies and is commonly used to treat miscarriages. Some states are saying that they'll try to ban or severely restrict access to these medications. But extremist governors and state legislators are looking to block the mail or search a person's medicine cabinet or control a woman's actions by tracking data on her apps she uses are wrong and extreme and out of touch. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. He's giving us so much here. So we'll be restricted in traveling, noted. People are using data in our apps, tracking when we're go where we're going, noted. And they shouldn't use that data in their apps, collecting their movements to penalize them 
for going. Pay attention to what he is telling you. Oh, man, God is really smiling. Whoever wrote this. Thank you. The majority of Americans. The American Medical Association. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists wrote to me and Vice President Harris stressing that these laws are not based on are not based on evidence and asking us to act to protect access to care. They say by limiting access to these medicines, maternal mortality will climb in America. That's what they say. Today, I'm directing the Department of Health and Human Services to take steps to ensure these critical medications are available to the fullest extent possible. And the politicians cannot interfere in the decisions that should be made between a woman and her doctor. And my administration will remain vigilant as the implications of this decision play out. I've warned about how this decision risks the broader right to privacy for everyone. That's because Roe recognized the fundamental right to privacy that has served as a basis for so many more rights that have come to take, we've come to take for granted. It was based on a lie. Let's fast forward. The right to marry the person you love. That has nothing to do with this. Justice Thomas said as much today. He explicitly called to reconsider the right of marriage equality, the right of couples to make their choices on contraception. This extreme and dangerous path the court is now taking us on. Wait, what? How is it extreme to say that couples and people who decide to get married should have decisions amongst themselves on how to protect themselves? How is that an extremist view? That's like, please don't fuck around with other people because, you know, we're a couple now and I don't need your diseases. Or, hey, why don't you wear a condom? Because I don't need a baby right now. Or, hey, I need my birth control pills. Hey, I'm putting in my IUD. These are conversations people have. Now, I don't know how same-sex couples are having these conversations unless, you know, they're lesbians and they're deciding on, I don't want a baby, you carry the baby. So I'm a little bit confused as he how he brings in same-sex and transsexuals, which usually don't, you know, men can't get pregnant. I don't care what anybody says right they can't now if you identify as a man you probably could get pregnant because you're just identifying as a man just like the way i would like to identify as a senior citizen so i can take in social security and not worry about income and have something small and be on a fixed income i can't identify as a as a retiree and that i'm 65 i'd like to Right. If I identify as that and that is accepted, then I will be taking in Social Security, kind of like if I'm a woman and I identify as a man, I could probably get pregnant. But men can't get pregnant. So I don't know why he's bringing the, you know, the queer nation into the conversation, because that has nothing to do with you have a lot of sex, you're a slut and you're not careful and you spread your legs and you're proud of having. How did Chelsea Handler say it? Yeah, she had like. 10 abortions before the age of 16. That tells me you're a slut. It doesn't tell me anything else. Let me close with two points. First, I call on everyone, no matter how deeply they care about this decision, to keep all protests peaceful. Peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. No intimidation. Violence is never acceptable. Threats and intimidation are not speech. We must stand against violence in any form. 
regardless of your rationale. Wait a minute. So are you going to remove Mad Maxine Waters or AOC? They said they're going to fill the streets and they're going to take this back and they're going to make it hurt. Are you going to censor them, remove them? Like what's going on here? Second, I know so many of us are frustrated and disillusioned that the court has taken something away that's so fundamental. I know so many women are now going to face incredibly difficult situations. I hear you. I support you. I stand with you. Did you hear all the little girls that were crying underneath you? No, right? The consensus of the American people, core principles of equality, liberty, dignity, and the stability of the rule of law demand that Roe should not have been overturned. With this decision, The conservative majority of the Supreme Court shows how extreme it is, how far removed they are from the majority of this country. They've made the United States an outlier among developed nations in the world. But this decision must not be the final word. My administration will use all of its appropriate lawful powers. But Congress must act. And with your vote, you can act. You can have the final word. This is not over. Thank you very much. More to say this in weeks to come. All grounds can't take questions. All grounds can't take questions. So, all right. So this happened, right? Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade. Let's see what CNN has to tell us about this, right? Huh. Demons are out. It's going to get bad. Here we go. The Supreme Court has just issued, and this is the decision, many are ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. This, the major case regarding abortion rights in this country. Jeffrey Tubin still with us here. As we wait to read this decision, Jeffrey, put into context how consequential this is. You know, um, psychologists have a term called flashbulb memory, mm-hmm. which is you remember where you are when something happened. Mm. The big deal. Kennedy assassination. Today is the moment right now when we are going to learn uh, the fate of constitutional abortion rights in America. 1970. Oh, my gosh. Did he just compare this to 9-11? What about you, Lubin Tubin? Nobody can forget that shit either. Three, the Supreme Court decided Roe versus Wade and said um, the right to uh, a woman's right to choose abortion was up to her until the moment of violence. until um, viability on the part of the fetus. They reaffirmed that many times, including in 1992 in um, um, a, a, case, a case that year. And now the Dobbs case involving uh, a statute out of Mississippi um, is a case about whether abortion rights uh, will, be, will continue under the United States Constitution. Um, it, this is a especially bizarre scenario in Supreme Court history because a draft opinion uh, of this uh, of, of in this case was leaked mm-hmm. uh, about six weeks ago um, where Roe v. Wade was overturned. And what we are going to find out momentarily mm-hmm. is whether that draft opinion resembles uh, the court's opinion, which has now been released. And um it's a very historical, historic and important so, moment. So, Jeffrey, stand by. I want to get straight to our Jessica Schneider, who is outside of the court uh, with more. Mm-hmm. Jessica, 
What is the yep. opinion from the court? Poppy and Jim, the court issuing that landmark ruling that this nation has been bracing for, and the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade, that they have eliminated the constitutional right to an abortion. And at first glance, this opinion is very similar to that draft opinion that we saw leaked just about a month and a half ago at the beginning of May. So what we're seeing at first glance here is that this is a 5-4 decision. This is an opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito, joined with those other conservatives, Justice Thomas, Gorsuch, Barrett, and Kavanaugh. Uh, The Chief Justice John Roberts not joining in the opinion, but joining in the judgment, meaning that he agrees that the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban uh, should be upheld, but not agreeing with this sweeping proclamation that Roe v. Wade is overturned. Um, We are looking into this opinion, but, you know, this will have immediate effects here. Um, By all estimates, about half of the states are expected to um, eliminate the right to abortion. We've got uh, about a half dozen states that have so-called trigger laws that their abortion bans will go into effect either immediately or within the next 30 days or the next few months. And then we have about a dozen states with so-called zombie laws. Those were actually abortion laws that were on the books before Roe v. Wade in 1973 that will then go back into effect. On the flip side, there are about 16 states in Washington, D.C. that have sort of amped up their abortion protections. So they're expecting potentially to see an influx of patients coming into their states to actually get abortions for people who are living in states that will uh, soon not be able to get abortions. So this is, in fact, a landmark ruling here. This is overturning nearly 50 years of precedent that was first established in Roe v. Wade and then affirmed in Casey, the Casey decision in 1992. Those opinions, and for 50 years, there has been a constitutional right to an abortion from the Supreme Court. Women have been able to get abortions. The state has not been able to restrict abortions up to the point of viability, about 23 to 24 weeks. But now this court uh, upending the past 50 years of history. And um, again, this looking very similar to that draft decision Again, written by Justice Samuel Alito in the draft decision. God won today. It was egregiously wrong. So we're going to go through this opinion and look at how it compares. But if it if it is similar, which it appears to be, he'll talk about how there's really no historical precedent for the Supreme Court, uh, you know, upholding the right to an abortion and that this should really be left to the states. This is what this opinion will do. It will say that the Constitution does not guarantee the right to abortion and it's left to the individual states. And one last thing, guys, you know, Justice Alito had said in that draft opinion and probably says it in this one as well, that this is just too divisive of an issue to um, kind of glean from the Constitution when it isn't specific about abortion and about the right to an abortion. And this is something that needs to be decided by individual states where people have the power to vote in their elected representatives. And now you see how the city and country become. Already, Washington, Oregon, and California have joined their arms to ensure that people can have abortions within their state. Other states will ban it. Pay attention. This is why it was very important to look at the peripherals. I said this uh, for years now. While we're focusing on the federal government, we're not paying attention to the peripherals. The uh, people that you have is governor, secretary of state, AG, state legislators. You see how important that is? While you're busy focusing on crazy people like AOC and cheering on people like Jim Jordan and whatnot, you are not paying attention to your own house. 
to your own backyard that affects you directly. Remember, each state is sovereign and each state can pass its own laws and it can do as it wishes. See, this is how they started. This is how states will increase in population, decrease in population and redraw their borders. This is only the beginning. This is it. This is where it all begins. And they really don't like Justice Clarence Thomas for what he's going to do. What is it? It's June 24th. Let me see. Let me do the dates. I would say that around Independence Day, you'll have a good notion of what I mean by that. Now, let me show you. um, (laughs) uh, Hold on. Where is it? Let me show you what's really going on live from the Epoch Times outside of the Supreme Court. Hold on. So while that plays in the background, as you can see, we have a lot of LGD, LGBT plus. Why do we have gay pride flags out there? What do gay people or transsexuals or queers have anything to do with vaginas and having babies? I'd like to know what their involvement of how they proclaim themselves, you know, whatever, right? You, you can just, you are you, you do you, if you're happy, you know, um, it being in a relationship with a woman and you're a woman then I'm happy for you. If you're happy being in a relationship with a man and you're a man, I'm happy for you. If you really feel in your heart that you should have been a man, but you're a woman and you want to identify as a woman and make that change, I am for you. If you are a man that wants to be a woman, I am for you because that'll make you happy. We want people to be happy. We will not dictate to anyone who they should love and who they should identify as ever. So again, what does your identification of your sexual orientation have to do with abortion? What does it have to do with killing an unborn child? What does it have to do with your sexual orientation? Why am I seeing gay pride flags out talking about sexual orientation when it comes for babies being killed. I'm not understanding what the issue is here. But we're not talking about horses. We're not talking about dolphins. We're talking about dolphins. A zygote is a zygote. We're talking about a zygote. If I take your zygote out of your body, will it live? Will it live? Is it the very Can you not answer a question or do you just want to yell? No. It's not the very early stage of human development. Are you a scientist? Are you a scientist? Yeah. No, no, but you know what? The very earliest stage of human development is a zygote. It's not a, it's a zygote. So your appendix is a human appendix. It's a part of the body. No, right, no, 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 right. 
If I take your okay, well, I'd like to step in as a scientist. Okay, so the zygote has to actually implant into your uterus in order to become a child, right? So you're not pulling out a zygote when you're having an abortion, right? Because the zygote is no longer a zygote once it's implanted. So there's your science basics 101. What a loser. He uses a word and he, and he, and he, and he talks like he knows what he's talking about. Simply put, it should have said, yeah, the zygote is what happens in the, you know, no baby. If it doesn't sit in the uterus, it doesn't sit in the uterus. That's it. That's basically it. This is where the fertilization event has begun, but until it implants, it's not completed. It just means that a sperm made it into the ovum. That's basically it. So what he's saying is really dumb. Very dumb. Because once that happens, the zygote has to start dividing. And as it's dividing, it's moving down to its pathway. And then it becomes marula once it implants. So, I, I, you know, that's the thing that I don't understand. You know, it's got to implant <laughs> to actually become a human being. And, you know, it can't just create itself outside the uterus. So the guy is talking nonsense because never, ever do you pull a zygote out with an abortion. Right? You never do. So that's, that's it. But, you know, they use a technical term to make it sound dumb when the actual morula, actually the name for baby in Greek is moro, morula, because that's where the baby happens. So this is real science. Let's listen to their deranged science. You've With been ignorant. You've been pro-abortion it's either ignorant. years. No, I'm not pro-abortion. I'm pro-choice. Yes. Pro-choosing to end the life of a human being. No, no, no. See, you guys always got to go back to the bullshit. Is it a lie? No, it's not a lie. Six and a half weeks when it becomes viable outside the room. What do you mean I'm not viable? My mom, she had the choice and she wanted to have me, but she had the choice. She had me because she had the choice. How old are you? I, 66. She didn't have the choice. What, what state did, you, did your mom get in? Oh, there were abortions in 56. Oh, they weren't legal, though. Oh, well, so what? They're not. That doesn't mean they weren't around. You're just making them so women can die. At it. Abortions you think aren't women don't die in abortions right now? No, what about no, no. What about That's Keisha a lie. Atkins in New Mexico? Oh, one example. One okay. example it is, it is, out of 260,000. 260,000 magically become a human when it becomes viable outside the human body why why is it it's only a piece of flesh before then what do you mean if it can't survive outside the human body
So I'd like to step in on that. Hera, my daughter, wasn't due until mid and July. I had her by emergency C-section on May 19th in the year 2000. Now it's 2022. We've got better science, right? They said that she wouldn't be viable. I was septic because of the twin. Something happened and I was septic. I had fever. I wasn't well, right? And my kid was just about 30 weeks. She was not going to be viable. They said that. So for three days, they had me in on antibiotics. And I remember my father just looking at her and saying, well, she looks pretty big, you know, for her age. And, and we prayed. And, you know, I was visiting my parents because I, I didn't want to be alone, you know, giving birth. And, um, and so I had a C-section out in the sticks, not even in the capital of Greece. And my daughter came out and immediately, you know, she was rushed to the children's hospital because they said she was sighing. Like she wasn't like crying a lot. She was doing like that. Right. And they said that means that she, her lungs are not, you know, the best and they had, they're underdeveloped, uh, you know, and they took her away. And I remember coming out of anesthesia and my baby not being there and already had left with an ambulance without me there. Uh, obviously, my family members, my, my dad went and my mom stayed behind. You know, the doctors were extremely concerned about me. So they were like, okay, calm down. I was like, I want to see the baby. They didn't tell me that the baby was away. They started giving me sedatives. I remember after the third sedative, I was standing up. I was bleeding everywhere in the robe. I was like, I need to, to find, you know, my baby, which by the way, she was less than a kilogram when she was born. I think they even, it, it was like 900 grams, right? Less than two pounds. Okay. And but she was tall, right? She didn't fit in an incubator. She was very long <laughs> and she had hair. And I remember, um, you know, the nurse whispering on the phone, I already gave her like three doses. I can't give her more. And he's like, look, if she's insisting, you need to let her go. I left the hospital, right? With whatever they gave me, I was so under adrenaline that I wasn't even paying attention. I wasn't listening to my mother. I literally walked across the street, rented a vehicle and drove, you know, 88 kilometers out to the children's hospital. And there she was. And all she did was like moan at me. And I wasn't allowed to see her much because, you know, had to get into all these robes and, you know, I was pumping milk. I stood there day and night just stalking the place. And so, you know, I wanted to make sure my baby was fine. My dad was like, I haven't left my eyes off of her. I already got her footprint. I've got her blood sample, you know, so we've got her DNA. You're good. And all I did was hang out there and watch her. And they had her on a respirator, which they then took her off after a while. They gave her some steroids for her lungs. And look at her now. She doesn't have any anything, you know. So, so 
the, the viability statement is stupid. Because if in the year 2000s in an underdeveloped nation, my, you know, 28 to 30 week old baby, right? I, I know when I conceived her. See, we women know this shit. It was September for me. So I knew when I conceived her. Okay. I just knew, even though I found out way late uh, that I was actually, I knew, I knew the minute it happened that, oh my gosh. Um, so, you know, people need to understand that this viable statement is stupid because then that means what does viability mean to live on their own? Like, what does that even mean? Um, you know, these are these are statements that people with talking points say. And why is this guy born in the 50s, right, sitting there advocating for abor- abortion rights, using words like zygote, and not knowing what the fuck it means? Why are these people saying these things? Who are they? Demons. That's what they are. Those that wish, because now <sighs> universities have no baby cells. And now states will save a lot of money from funding places like Planned Parenthood that are literally there to kill babies. Here is video of what we're seeing now happening. Did you guys see that? What they're sending to the Supreme Court? Let me read it out to those that are watching or listening. They're sending postcards that they've pre-printed to the Supreme Court that says uh, that they're going to be treated like livestock. It's a picture of a cow. Hold on. Let me get the zoom in and I'll read it to you word for word. It says there's a term for living creatures not permitted to control their reproduction. That term is livestock. (laughs) Look, let me tell you something. That's true. So this whole vaccine, we could start on that conversation. We could start on the fact that we are shadow to them anyway. But for some reason, they believe that they should have the right to kill babies or else they're livestock. The fact that you have no rights doesn't matter. Are these all proud women that are supporting their right to abort babies because they feel like it, right? Because they feel like it. Are they doing it just to make themselves feel better because they've already had one? That's a question you should ask. Perfect. 
the ladies holding a sign my body my choice i'm not an incubator nobody wants to incubate you you don't deserve kids and you're going to see how that comes along in the future now let's go back into the past let's talk about cheney you ready well, the Texas judge has set an arraignment date for Friday for Vice President Dick Cheney and former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez. They were indicted this week by a Texas grand jury on state charges accusing them of responsibility for prisoner abuse in a privately run federal jail. Cheney, Gonzalez, and the others named in the indictments will not be arrested and do not need to appear in person at the arraignment, the judge said. One indictment charges Cheney and Gonzalez with engaging in organized criminal activity. It alleges they neglected federal prisoners and are responsible for abuses in the privately run prisons in Willacy County in South Texas. The grand jury accused Cheney of a conflict of interest because of his alleged influence over the county's federal immigrant prison and his investments in the Vanguard Group, which invests in private prison companies. The indictment accuses Gonzalez of using his influence to stop an investigation into corruption during the building of another federal jail. The indictments were brought by Willacy County District Attorney uh, Juan Guerra. Guerra has been in office so more than a dozen years, but was defeated in the March Democratic primary. He leaves office December 31st. An attorney for one of the private prison operators filed motions accusing Guerra of prosecutorial vindictiveness. Four of the eight indictments Guerra brought target judges and special prosecutors who played a role in an earlier investigation of him. On Wednesday, the judge, Manuel uh, Banales, said he would not listen to motions to quash the indictments because District Attorney Guerra was not in court. Willacy County District Attorney Juan Guerra joins us now from studio in Houston. Welcome to Democracy Now! Lay out your indictments against the Vice President and former Attorney General Juan Guerra. Uh, um, well, I mean, it's uh, trying to lay it out in a very, very uh, compact uh, First of all, this investigation has been going on uh, for quite a bit. Uh, I personally started back in 01 when the death of the De La Rosa occurred. And so that, that quickly escalated. Uh, I, I prosecuted the individuals that, uh, that killed uh, De La Rosa, the other two inmates. And at that point, I realized that the, uh, the, uh, the security and the welfare of the uh, inmates uh, was, uh, was very laxed. And uh, at the same time, we also learned, uh, I investigated the auditor who was in that also in, 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 uh, involved in the corruption. So the, the two things were coming in at the same time. So when the uh, issue came up about the corruption, we brought the federals to get involved. The federals uh, picked up the investigation and dragged it all to 2006. In November 2006, they convicted uh, the commissioners and Cortez, uh, who works for a private prison. But then uh, a week later, Cortez and commissioners uh, were given only a, a three-month sentence. And at that point, they, they basically uh, uh, shut down the investigation. The U.S. attorney f for the Southern District, uh, who was in the investigation, was informed me that the investigation was over, even though just a week prior had told me that these individuals were given very light sentence because they were bringing down uh, higher ups. Uh, so that's, that uh, stopped the federal investigation. That was in 06. When uh, at the same time, the other eight U.S. attorneys were also told 
to stop other investigations. So I felt that at that point, um, uh, I needed to continue with the investigation. I knew basically, you know, since I was the one that started it, I continued it. That's where my problem started at that point. You know, I ended up getting uh, arrested, uh, getting indicted in frivolous uh, charges, and so I knew that I that I was stepping on people's toes. The the person that indicted me uh, uh, was Marvin Mosbacher, who who was there when we started the investigation, working under the Cheney and, and Bush administration. He was an attorney working under them, so they brought him in, uh, Marvin Mosbacher, an ex U.S. attorney for the Southern District, to go ahead and indict me. So. We continued tracking the money um, uh, all these years, and finally, um, my charges were dismissed about two weeks ago after 18 months of being indicted, and of course that hurt my, my being uh, elected. The question was, do I just look the other way? The foot soldiers at the FBI and the Texas Rangers were telling me that, that I was on my own because I, you know, that the private investigation was, over, was off limits, so I continue uh, on my own and gathering information. Uh, four, four months ago, we started uh, Operation uh, Goliath when they thought that I had already lost the election and that the investigation, I mean, it was pretty much over. And so that kind of left me open because nobody knew that I, that I had uh, started the investigation again. And so not even my staff, nobody knew in my little county. I was working out of my office and I only trusted very few people. So we brought, started bringing experts from throughout the country uh, with regard to the private prisons, and then we started following the money. Uh, one, uh, one, yeah, no one. Uh, just, just to get clear now, the, uh, the relationship of Cheney and Gonzalez uh, to this, to the, uh, what you say is, is corruption and, and mistreatment of, of, of prisoners in private prisons, what was their connection uh, to this? Well, the connection, it's, uh, it's uh, organizing criminal activity. It has all the elements. Uh, uh, our President Vice, uh, uh, Vice President uh, Cheney is at the very top, and he has a lot of influence on ICE uh, and home loans, Homeland Security. They determine how much money they're going to pay the private prisons per dim, per person. So right now, uh, the contracts go to the GEO Group, which is the, one of the highest, uh, the biggest private prisons, CCA and Carmel. Now, these three are the, the biggest company. When you round up the inmates, this is where they end up. Their money is, they're getting paid at, right now it's at $80 per person uh, per diem. It used to be 54, now it's $80, and that's controlled by the administration as to how much money they're going to pay per person. Uh, they're fixing to going up to $120. Juan Guerra, so the vice president's attorney says this is bizarre, that you had Cheney invested in Vanguard Group, which is a mutual fund that, yes, does invest in the private prison industry, but can you indict him for being responsible for abusive behavior in the prison? Well, yes, because, uh, the, again, you have the activities, the criminal activities, that his, his involvement is that he is aware with the Vanguard Group uh, the Vanguard Group has invest, is invested, it's a top ten companies that are investing on the three top uh, private prisons companies, the private prisons. So if you follow Vanguard, then he ended up investing $85 million. The problem here is that the Vanguard Group is not part of his blind trust. This is a, a money that he has, quote, on the side. It is reported in his income tax with his signature there, so he knows exactly uh, that where his money is, is uh, invested. If this was part of his blind trust, and then he would have no control.
So because he has control, so now they're trying to increase the number, the, the price, instead of $80, they're trying to go to $120, which means that these private companies are going to end up making more money, which means that Vanguard would make more money, which means that obviously uh, the vice president would make more money. And Alberto the, Gonzalez's connection? The, the, that's, that's one. You have the, the top boss, which is uh, vice president, and then you have uh, Alberto Gonzalez, uh, the, the enforcer, to making sure that that uh, uh, criminal activity, which is going on in the private prisons, uh, we had numerous of death that are occurring throughout our country. Uh, we, we brought in uh, brought experts and uh, uh, witnesses that were telling us that the numbers of pri uh, prison inmates uh, dying in the private prison is, is staggering. It's about five times as high as the public prisons. So that all this criminal activity that is going on uh, is contributed to now allowing investigations into what is going. Alberto Gonzalez's part was to make sure that private prisons would not get investigated. Uh, so that when we started the investigation, the FBI took, it, took over the investigation the assistant U.S. attorney that was handling the investigation. Uh, Juan Antogar, we want to thank you for being with us. Can't talk too much truth because the U.S. media loves to lie. Part one. JLo's new song, Jenny from the Block, all about Lopez roots, about how she's still a neighborhood gal at heart. But folks from that street in New York, the Bronx section, sound more likely to give her a curb job than a blow job or blo block party. The New York Post, we're sorry about that slip up there. I have no idea how that happened, but it won't happen again. And that's your news and the G Block, as Fox reports okay, this Monday, November the 4th. Now, the first thing I have to say is it, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Uh, but the second is that actually, you know how he says, um, he says, um, I don't know how that happened, <laughs> but I can tell you it won't happen again. Well, actually, we do know how that happened, and that is it happened just the way I activated those networks before, and that is that block and blow start with the same three letters. Your brain is simultaneously, his brain was simultaneously activating both block and blow and anything else that began with BLO. There was apparently a second network active, uh, that was activated by Jennifer Lopez's undulating uh, half-naked body that led to that Freudian slip. Uh, and that explains the convergence of those two, uh, of those two networks. You can actually produce uh, slips of the tongue like this uh, about a third of the time experimentally. Now, uh, suppose somebody knew how to shape and activate networks in voters. Well, somebody does, and they're called the GOP. And let me give you an example. Um, this is... Um, this is a word that used to be central to what it meant to be a Democrat. This was the term that was used by Thomas Jefferson. It was used liberally by all the, uh, the founders. Um, but it became associated over a number of years with a number of rather uh, unseemly phrases. So that uh, liberal became associated with liberal elite, big government, tax and spend liberals, cut and run liberals, special, liberal special interests. All those things became associated because over time they were repeated over and over and over so that they became, essentially they metastasized from the minds of uh, really brilliant wordsmiths on one side of the aisle into even the... the You're touching me again. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, must be something unconscious going on. But in any case, the... the oh, no, it's very conscious. <laughs> the, um, 
but what what essentially is what, yeah. what essentially the, is happening is that those uh, those networks have essentially metastasized from the minds of conservative think tanks into the minds of even liberal and independent um, independent voters. So let's just to finish out the network. Uh, we've got Volvo driving, sushi eating, latte drinking, godless atheists. There you have it, a liberal. And that's why it has actually been over 40 years since a Democratic candidate for president called himself a liberal. That was Lyndon Johnson uh, in 1964. You'll remember the dodge from Michael Dukakis in 1988 uh, and uh, Hillary Clinton's impressive dodge um, to say that she was a progressive in one of the, in one of the debates. What I want to, the point I want to make is that this is how our minds work. We activate networks and we do it all the time in persuasion. There's nothing wrong with activating networks. If you couldn't have your networks activated, you couldn't think. And if you want to be persuasive with someone, to come back to the example uh, that Nick gave us at the beginning, that was wonderfully persuasive language and intonation and visual imagery that, that, uh, that FDR was activating in people's minds in that, in that talk. And the line between what's propaganda and what's good persuasion is often a very difficult one to draw. Uh, there are lines that you can draw, but, uh, but, uh, but they're, often, they're often difficult. Uh, I want to show you an example of the activation of networks that I think is uh, one of the two most brilliant television ads ever produced, and this is Ronald Reagan's uh, Morning in America. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, Nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder, and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? Now, why was that so powerful? It was, it was so powerful because it activated multi-sensory, multimodal networks of association that were all congruent with one another. Uh, it activated gut-level feelings about family, about marriage, about the generations, about the treatment of older people, about, uh, the, about the hopefulness of people. Note that that, um, that, that um, uh, ad is remembered as morning in America. But the first line is not, it's morning in America, it's morning again in America. It actually has an implicit negative tone to it that runs throughout. He, say, he doesn't say we're proud, we're strong, we're good. The announcer says, Prouder, stronger, better. Prouder, stronger, and better than what? Prouder, stronger, and better than the dark nights of Carter Mondale. But the important thing about this is that's a network that he was activating along with this positive network. This is as feel-good an ad as you can get. But he's making sure that he's making the comparison. I don't consider that illegitimate at all. I think that's simply, simply a, a brilliant use of activating multiple networks at the same time that establishes what's good about you while trying to establish, you know, we weren't so proud, we weren't so strong, uh, and we weren't so good before. To wrap up, I want to give you an example of a, of a, do I have time for one nefarious example? I want to give you an example of where I think the activation of networks is in fact unethical, and that is in the term support the troops, or support our troops. 
The reason why that's, that is a problematic frame in George's language, in context, in, in, uh, in um, Frank's language, uh, uh, and you'll see my language about networks, we're getting at the same thing, is that it's essentially alighting two different networks that have nothing to do with each other, just as the war in terror, war on terror allowed George Bush to elide the war on bin Laden and the war in Iraq, which incidentally, we have won neither of those. Uh, but the war on terror was a very powerful way of framing it. What, uh, what Support the Troops does is to is elides a network about supporting our men and women in uniform, on the one hand, and deploying them to Iraq and keeping them in Iraq. Those things have no logical relation to each other whatsoever, but it has caught the Democrats over and over and over uh, for their fear of being branded that if we step out and say, uh, I believe that it's time for a responsible withdrawal or whatever they say and they actually back it up with a vote that they'll be accused of not supporting our troops. And to, 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 just to conclude with a comment that, that gets to the kind of thing that George is talking about, how do you answer something like this? How do you, how do you not repeatedly capitulate in advance? Um, you need to, as, as George is describing, you either need to be activating um, an alternative set of networks with a very powerful story behind it, or, or you need to, uh, to connect this with something else. And just to give you an example of that, suppose the Democrats for, had said something like this. They could have done this as early as 2003, but certainly it should have happened in the 2004 election. It could certainly happen now. And it's something like this. Mr. President, you want to know what it means to support our troops? Don't make their families uh, take up a collection for their body armor. You want to know what it means to support our troops? Armor their Humvees so they don't lose their lives and limbs when they don't need to. Do you want to know what it means to support our troops? Don't send them into somebody else's civil war. You want to know what it means to support our troops? Don't send them to war unless you would send your own children. You want to know what it means to support our troops? When they come home damaged, when they come home with their bodies frayed from that war, don't you dare house them with, warehouse them with cockroaches in Walter Reed Hospital. You want to know what it means to support our troops? When they come back to the shores that they will never see again, having given their life for this country, don't whisk their bodies in in the middle of the night for, because it's good for PR for people not to see their bodies. You proudly display their flag-draped coffins like every American president has done in American history before you. You want to know what it means to support our troops? Don't you ever ever write letters to their parents, to their spouses, to their children when they've left, lost their lives for this country with a mechanical pen. You write it with your own hand so you feel what it means when they've lost their lives for this country and you really want to know what it means to support our troops. Bring them home. Kind of sounds like what President Trump was trying to do to really support our troops. And that's where we support them, that they have rights, that they shouldn't be in wars that, 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 that aren't legitimate. I turn your attention to the 2000 elections that were rigged. They went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided we're not going to be counting anymore, right? Standing, quo warranto, boom, done, finished. We got to do something. Ooh, we can't talk about this. We need to get everyone on. You know, we're not going to be able to do this electronic voting. We got to get rid of the chads. We got to have more control over this. Boom, 9-11, boom, war, 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 and words, lots of them. Begin with the obligatory Orwell slide. Okay, that's 1984. Uh, this is 2007. That's from an army base in the South. Obedience is freedom. Uh, this is from someone running for president. You know, Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> freedom is about authority. Now, um, 
The point that Nick was making is a powerful one. Uh, framing and use of metaphor is necessary to say what you believe. And the reason for that is a very simple one, though it's, it's often missed because most people don't know very much about what's been discovered in cognitive science and in neuroscience in the last 30 years. The basic finding is this. Surprise, you think with your brain, and most thought is unconscious below the level of consciousness, about 98%. And that is a remarkable, important, important fact. Now, Orwell, in trying to deal with uh, issues of doublethink uh, and uh, uh, newspeak and so on, uh, came out with the essay we're talking about today, uh, Politics in the English Language, and what he was saying there was something that isn't true, I'm sad to say. That is, he talked about, he said, that the problem was bad habits of foolish thought, inaccurate, slovenly, dull, pretentious, ungraceful, meaningless language, that he called the decay of language. He said this led to political propaganda and its effects. And to cure it, you just had to let the meaning choose the word. And, you know, he never read the modern uh, propagandists who write so very well, the, the David Brookses and, and uh, Peggy Noonans of the world. Uh, and this view is actually a naive and dangerous view because it comes from uh, the Enlightenment. And it's a fallacy. The Enlightenment was wonderful for its politics. This country was founded on the basis of uh, Enlightenment ideas about freedom, about equality, about balance of powers, and so on. But the Enlightenment had a false view of reason. And it's still there, and it's still out there, often in the media, often in the Democratic Party, uh, and in all sorts of folks. Uh, many distinguished newspapers have the idea that reason is conscious, that it's universal, that it's logical, that it's literal, it fits the world, that it's unemotional, that emotion gets in the way of reason, that it's disembodied, and that it's interest-based, that reason is there to serve your interests. And one horrible thing about this is you see it in the Democratic Party a great deal. There, that is, if you believe this, you'll think all you need to do is tell people the facts and the figures, and then they'll reason to the right conclusion, right? Wrong. I mean, we've seen this certainly in the last two elections, but we see it all the time. And the reason is that the cognitive and brain sciences have shown that this view of reason is just false in a very deep way, and not just false in a simple way. It's false in every single detail. Every detail. So, what is reason? First, 98% unconscious. That is, most of the thought and the reasoning you do is not accessible to your consciousness. And I don't just mean things that you hear that you are not conscious of. I mean most of the ideas that you have, the concepts that you have, are unconscious. You don't know your own system of concepts. Right? Very important. I don't know mine. We're studying it, trying to figure it out. We've made a, a lot of progress in it but it's still hard to figure it out. Uh, un understanding what your system of concepts in is hard. Secondly, 
Reason requires emotion, and emotion is not always conscious. Uh, one of the things you'll hear from Drew Weston is emotion can be unconscious. Uh, this has really been studied dramatically, most dramatically, by Antonio Damasio, the country's perhaps leading neuroscientist in a book called Descartes' Error. And what Antonio pointed out was this. He studied people who had brain damage, you know, strokes, accidents, where they lost their ability to feel. They lost their ability to feel emotions. And it turned out they could not be rational. Why? Think about this. Suppose you are trying to figure out you have a purpose and you're trying to figure out what your purposes are. Well, if you don't know if you're going to be happy or sad if that happens, what are you going to do? How do you reason? If you don't know if other people are going to be angry at you or happy with you, what are you going to do? You can't reason. And that is the truth. Reason, rationality, requires, absolutely requires emotion. And the pathways have begun to be figured out uh, in great detail that shows in the brain how this works. Now, uh, the next part of this is that we have different worldviews. We don't all think the same. It turns out that, that movement conservatives and you know, strong progressives do not see the world in the same way. Surprise. <laughs> you know, you go on the TV shows, they talk right past each other, but it's because they see the world differently. They have different understandings of what morality is. And it's important to understand politics is about morality. Every politician who proposes some policy does it because he says it's right. Nobody gets up there and says, I've got a bad policy for you. It's evil. It's wrong. Here's what I propose. Right? Nobody does this. It's about morality. And all of the arguments, every argument that's made for a proposal comes back to a moral position. And we have two very different moral positions happening in this country. And one of the most important findings we have is that just about every one of us has versions of both of them in our heads. And the reason that we can have this is a little fact about the brain. It's called uh, mutual inhibition. That is, you can have two structures in the brain where each uh, neurally inhibits the other. If this is active, it'll inactivate that. If this is active, it'll inactivate that. And then they can be about different subject matters. Some, some people can be uh, progressive in one area, conservative in, an, in another area, and might not ever know that they're switching back and forth. And they might call themselves conservative and be progressive in five different areas, or call themselves liberals and be conservatives in three, and three or four different areas. That happens, and as a result, there is no left to right uh, line. When people say there's a middle, it's not there. There is no ideology of the middle. Think for a minute about two people called moderates, Chuck Hagel and Joe Lieberman. Right? They agree on nothing. <laughs> yeah. Hegel, a conservative who's against the war, Lieberman, a liberal who's, who's for the war. Right? They're both moderates. There is no ideology of the middle. You have people who have both progressive and conservative views who have all sorts of combinations, and some people are almost all one, and some people are almost all the other. But it is not the case that, that's the, that you have the left to right view, and that's important for the Democratic Party. Democrats tend to think that if you move to the right, you'll get more votes. 
The Republicans understand that they don't have to move to the left to get more votes. They understand this, this fact. The Democrats need to learn it. Very, very important uh, part of this. Another one is that you always think using frames. Every word is defined with respect to a frame like bottle. Okay, what is a bottle? It's a container like this. You can put liquid in, drink it out. I can hold it like this. It's made of a certain number of things. That's all you know about bottle. If I say he picked up the bottle, you understand it because you understand that frame. Every single word. If I activate, say a word, it activates a frame. So for example, when I teach this, uh, what I do is I tell my students, I give them a, a problem. And the problem is this, ready? Don't think of an elephant. Whatever you do, do not think of an elephant, right? The word elephant is gonna activate that frame and that image even if you negate it. The first thing you need to know is if you negate or even question a, f a word that has a frame associated with it, you're going to activate that frame. So if, you're act if somebody gives you a conservative frame and you're a liberal and you use their words, you'll be activating their frame and their worldview. Crucial. Now, why does this matter? Uh, here are some more examples of this. Here are examples of the Democrats' arguments for troop withdrawal. It doesn't serve our interests. War was illegitimate based on false information. It's unwinnable, right? Each one uses the other side's frame. It says, this is about our interests. Uh, war was legitimate. So here, is, here are the uh, other arguments, okay? Here's the Republican frame. We have vital interests in Iraq. The war is legitimate, authorized by Congress, based on the information available, and it's winnable, okay? That is a coherent, consistent frame. If you take the negation of each of those statements, they don't form a single frame. They're not consistent and they're using this frame. In short, what's happening is the Democratic arguments are activating the Republicans' frames. And this happens all the time. Breaking news to bring you now involving fundraising, promises of access to power, possibly the White House, and hundreds of thousands of dollars in cold, hard cash. Tonight, we learned, just a few hours ago, that Congressman Henry Waxman, who runs a powerful House Oversight Committee, wants to know more about an incident caught on tape. A Bush fundraiser on camera trying to rustle up donations for the Bush Library. He says he was doing nothing wrong and blames the media for playing gotcha. But that has not put out the firestorm this videotape is kicking up. CNN's Ed Henry tonight, keeping them honest. Promises of access to the president's top aides in exchange for contributions to the George W. Bush Library and some cold hard cash on the side for the man brokering the deal. The whole discussion caught on tape. Here's what he said. A couple of hundred thousand. I think that would probably get the attention of people raising the money. That's Texas lobbyist and Bush fundraiser Stephen Payne unwitting star of this shocking video secretly recorded by the Times of London. You see him here trying to wrangle a donation to the Bush Library from a man whom he thought was representing the exiled former president of Kyrgyzstan. Now, do you guys want to know why the Times of London or why all these allies actually uh, came against the Bush and Obama administration together? in certain things 
You'll have to read my lawsuit to understand the story. But this will be a good precursor. Pain again. 200, 250, something like that. That's going to be a show of we're interested. In exchange for the money, Payne is caught on tape promising to set up meetings with top administration officials, including the vice president. Payne again. Cheney's possible. Definitely the national security advisor. Definitely Dr. Rice. The White House distanced itself from Payne and suggested he's no insider. There's categorically no link between any official business in the Bush Library. Uh, Steve Payne was never an employee of the White House, uh, but we do use uh, hundreds of volunteers a year, as you know, for um, helping us do advance work. The White House does admit Payne helped with logistics on some foreign trips. And Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff did appoint him to an advisory committee. And of course, he did raise $200,000 for the president's re-election campaign. In a long written statement to CNN, Payne called the Times of London story gotcha journalism. He acknowledged mentioning to his apparent clients that they might be able to make donations to think tanks, foundations, and or President Bush's library. But said he made it very clear that there could be no quid pro quo. Payne showed us emails where he wrote he would accept the 250000 and pass it directly to the library while noting that he could not promise specific government action in return, because that would be bribery. It seems like something's different in the tape than is in the printed letter. I guess the key question is, did this guy, Stephen Payne, get White House meetings for his clients? I asked Dana Prino that question at the White House briefing today. She said she didn't know, so I asked, well, will the White House release visitor logs so we can see how many times has Stephen Payne in recent years been going in and out of the White House, and has he been bringing various clients? This turned out to be a fake client, but he does purport to have other clients. Has he brought them in? She said she was going to consult with White House lawyers, uh, but uh, now you have, as you mentioned earlier, Chairman Henry Waxman on Capitol Hill trying to investigate this. But I can tell you, he's been trying to get visitor logs and other things. He's been trying to get other documents from the White House for for months and months now, and he's not been very successful. So it's very unlikely we're going to get those documents. It's kind of actually. remarkable you can't get visitor logs at the White House. I mean, it seems it's the, the public's building. But, but are there any regulations on these presidential libraries? I mean, any public disclosure requirements? President Clinton, I, I think, famously has not disclosed, you know, who's right. given money to his library. It, it's pretty much a, a lot of potential for abuse. Very uh, little regulations. Basically, someone can come up uh, and there's no limit on donations, a million dollars, five million dollars. You could be a foreign entity, a foreign government, uh, and there's really basically no public disclosure. You're not required to uh, publicly release your donors like you would in a presidential campaign. That is obviously there's a lot of potential for abuse, and this investigation on the Hill is going to focus in not just on Republican, but Democratic libraries potentially as well. Uh, are foreign governments, uh, foreign entities trying to influence the U.S. government, Anderson? So now we have uh, that to keep in mind, and that will unfold, and you will understand how elections are stolen. <laughs> You're going to be like, what? We're talking bribery, Tory. Yeah. Uh, uh. We talked about NARA, right? They're going to privatize the presidential libraries. You will never be able to see who's funding what, and they get to control the history. Now, that's happening while you're distracted with everything else. And while you're distracted with, you know, Trump coming back, and which is going to happen. They're not going to stop it. Things are happening. End of story. They could cry all they want, blue in their face, <laughs> God is going to win this one. So what you need to focus on is on your state. 
You need to focus on the fact that they're privatizing these libraries. You need to focus on impeach 44. Now, uh, many people asked me, and I have to really jump off very quickly. Many people asked me, you know, Tori, why haven't you, you know, been suicided? People need to understand that there's people that know that I know, no. And there's a lot of people that don't know, and I know they don't know, and those that know, know they don't know, that have told them to stand down. You must revisit exactly what I have said before to understand that. See, when you actually get an insider talking to you, you don't want to hear them because it makes you uncomfortable to know that you've trusted lies of those that you have uplifted. Those that are all resigning from the Senate helped pass this. Thorn for five minutes. Our, found- Our founders were clear. The Second Amendment was designed as the backbone upon which individual rights and liberties could be secured. Efforts by the ruling class and our government are aimed at crippling this nation and corroding our republic. It's true. Red flag laws sound benign on paper. Flagging dangerous individuals and keeping them from weaponry seems like a cut and dry issue. But a simple cursory glance at the actions of our overreaching federal government clearly shows that these laws are ripe for federal abuse. They will abuse your rights and mine. Make no mistake, red flag laws will be used to flag those who vote for freedom, strip them of their right to self-defense, and empower faceless bureaucrats to dole out or to not dole out the right of self-defense to a downtrodden and oppressed class of citizens. They will be weaponized to demonize and destroy political dissidents in this country. If you raise your children to adhere to Proverbs instead of POTUS, you may be stripped of your gun rights. If you vote against the regime, you may be stripped of your gun rights. If you refuse the medical decisions pushed by the regime, you may be stripped of your gun rights. To the American people, I say this. It is not a right if you have to ask permission to exercise it. We are very near this government becoming the exact reason our founders penned the Second Amendment. Not to hunt deer, but to defend against tyranny or invasion. Red flag laws sound harmless on paper. We all want to keep firearms out of the hands of dangerous people. But remember who the government says that you are. The CDC has labeled you a national security problem for protecting your health. The FBI last September called your mothers and wives domestic terrorists for protecting your children. A House committee labeled half the country as coup sympathetic just a few weeks ago. The same faceless fact checkers who censor your speech will seize your sovereignty, come to your front door, and they won't be coming with a clipboard and a smile. These liberal lackeys will show up at before dawn, invade your home, seize your property, and smash any concept of individual liberty you may possess. Remember the actions the ruling elite took against those at Waco and Ruby Ridge. We must wake up. We cannot trust this government. We must not give them more legal avenues to persecute Americans that they took an oath to defend. Exactly that. You are now a terrorist and a national security threat and not eligible to have a gun because you want dominion over your own body. You are now considered a national security risk and a hazard to society if you have defended the rights of your children at a school board. What you don't see is what these red flag laws do. 
If we have the fourth unelected branch of government labeling people as they wish as terrorists, we're fucked. Uh, I should actually take you down a last minute. Oh my gosh, I'm going to be late. Uh, last minute uh, trip down memory lane. Where are we? I need to find this. Uh, of how this has happened before. Next time you try to check in for a flight, you could discover your name is on the government's terror watch list. You and hundreds of thousands of other people, apparently, among the many names, Drew Griffin. Is it Drew Griffin of CNN's Special Investigations Unit? The government says no, but as you'll see, it's not exactly a picnic for him at the airport, nor for a lot of other law-abiding citizens. So how did this happen, and what, if anything, can we do about it? Can you do about it? Keeping them honest tonight, here's what Drew found out. Washington attorney Jim Robinson is a former assistant attorney general. He's a former U.S. attorney from Michigan. He holds a high-level government security clearance, and he's a former law school dean, a husband, a granddad, an American. And he gets delayed, if not stopped, every time he gets on a plane. Why? Because Robinson is also one of the estimated one million names now on the terror watch list. So it seems for years now, despite my best efforts to get off. This week, Robinson joined the ACLU in Washington to mark what the group calls a ridiculous milestone. A million names the government believes match known terrorists. And according to the ACLU, 20,000 new names like Robinson's are added every month. What does it mean? It means because of his name, he can't check into flights electronically. He can't check bags at the curb, can't check in at one of the new speedy airport kiosks. Every time he travels, he and a million others need to wait in line. And see somebody who then has to make a call uh, and determine that apparently I am not the James Kenneth Robinson who is the cause of my being on the watch list. Going to Chicago this morning. Don't think it can happen to you. It's happening to me. A watch list? So how did I get on this list? Well, the TSA is adamant it's not even me, even though it is me getting stopped at the airports. The TSA says it's the airlines full. The airlines say they're just following the list provided to them by the TSA. And coincidentally, this all began in May, shortly after I began a series of investigative reports critical of the TSA. The same agency that runs your elections. <laughs> Again, they know how you vote. They know what you do. They know who you are. They have all your information because we have voluntarily given up those rights. And now... We're at that point. What do we do? Hmm? Does it stop when doves cry? Hmm? That's a question one might ask. When does it stop? How are they going to get this done? God bless. Deep if you will, a picture of you and I engaged in a kiss. Sweat of your body covers me. Can you, my darling? Can you picture the 
dream if you can record your an ocean of violets and blue animals strike curious poses they feel the heat the heat between me and you can you just leave me standing alone in a world that's so cold maybe i'm just too demanding maybe i'm just like my father too bold maybe you're just like my mother she's never satisfied why do we scream at each other